everybody, and welcome to Voices and Visions slash Directors Club. Yes, indeed. This is a incredibly special bonus episode, um, a bonus interview uh, that I, I wanted to share with both feeds once again, simply because the guest uh, that I have on board, of course, has been on the show, both shows in the past for, in, for incredible interviews, and I, I am so excited for you all to partake in the latest conversation I had with actor turn director Keith Gordon of course you remember him from dress to kill Christine back to school and the legend of Billie Jean among many 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 others um, and of course he went on to direct some of the more underrated films um, of most decades, the 80s, 90s, um, and the aughts, I would say, with uh, such films as The Chocolate War, A Midnight Clear, Waking the Dead, Mother Night, and uh, his foray into the musical, courtesy of Mr. Dennis Potter, uh, The Singing Detective. So Keith uh, and I connected a couple years back, and... Uh, mainly just had a general conversation about his work, but then it sort of evolved into uh, a- another discussion last time where we talked about underrated directors. But I decided to um, try Ken with a different subject, and this time we we dive into not only his recent work as uh, a TV director. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you look at his IMDb. And if you're a fan of most uh, the, the recent new wave of incredible television that we've been experiencing as of late, I, I think you'll be impressed because he's directed episodes of uh, seasons of Fargo as well as Better Call Saul, The Leftovers, and um, one of my new favorite shows, Legion, because uh, I, I had no idea. I, I, I didn't know before I watched the finale of last season that uh, Keith's credit would pop up and when it did I, I, I even mentioned this in an interview I, I just wanted to applaud because it's so well directed that that show every episode is kind of mind-blowing especially on a visual level but uh, I, I'm also just a ridiculous fan of Dan Stevens and uh, now Rachel Keller both both who just are, are great on Legion um, one of the many reasons to check out that show, but Keith and I uh, start off the conversation with that, uh, that discussion, and then we talk about underrated films of the 90s, because like I said, I think uh, a couple of my picks, uh, A Midnight Clear and Mother Night, would be among that list of underrated 90s films, and I'm including a link to my letterbox list uh, of titles that I thought of after we uh, had this conversation. I didn't really bring up too much because I wanted Keith to pretty much, I wanted to be the Keith Gordon show and have him, you know, um, mainly carry the conversation once we get to some of his picks. But um, if you want to check out some of my picks, uh, there's a link in the show notes. So please check that out. And of course, among the links is uh, nowplayingnetwork.net. I can't say enough good things about some of the recent content we've got from Pure Cinema Podcast, From the Neighborhood, Bill Ackerman's great new show about Blue Velvet. Um, of course, Supporting Characters has been putting out great material again. And, uh, well, Director's Club just put out a great episode 
uh, sort of their first redux on um, Robert Altman, which is an episode that Patrick and I did once I finally returned to the uh, Directors Club back back in the day. And, well, Brad now brought some more to the table in terms of other titles we may not have covered, but also just their take on some of the films we did discuss, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, for example. So there's a lot of great things uh, from Directors Club as of late and Fresh Perspective, Movie Madness, Drinking at the Movies, um, Voices and Visions, of course, Ah, man, and Vinyl Emergency. So (laughs) you you got a lot um, to catch up on if you haven't over at nowplayingnetwork.net. But also, I just want to you know stop rambling with this introduction and get right to it because once I once again, Keith Gordon is one of my favorite people to talk with. You know, just talk with in general, but also about movies. Uh, he's incredibly spirited, incredibly passionate, and just a joy. Uh, I mean, you know, there's certain people that you look forward to talking with. Uh, you know, whether they're friends or family. But then, you know, <laughs> once you have the pleasure of putting together podcasts, you, you start to like, oh, man, there are just some guests that I've had or some people that I've met or some people I've just interacted and exchanged words with in the past that I never thought I would. And Keith Gordon is one of those just because I go back to the day of or to the days of, um, you know, endlessly rewatching Christine uh, on a VHS tape that my dad put together for me when I was younger so I could watch Christine. Um, and I was, I was kind of obsessed with that film and the car and the performance of Keith Gordon. So if you would have told me back then when I was young that I'd be, uh, you know, having a conversation with, with the, the lead character in Christine, I I wouldn't have believed it. And here we are third conversation, one of the best yet, and I'm excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, here's my latest conversation with the extremely talented Keith Gordon. Thank you so much to both Voices and Visions subscribers and Directors Club fans. Talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Voices and Visions, as well as another special bonus episode, cross-linked with Directors Club, in which I am talking to a director, a returning champion of cinema. Um, this will be our <laughs> third conversation, in which uh, you know, as I mentioned last time, hopefully becomes a yearly tradition. I know, I know how a lot of people may feel about sequels, but I guarantee this is not going to be the Jaws three of of this particular podcast franchise. Uh, we have once again a great actor turned great director, who of course has worked with greats like De Palma and John Carpenter, and recently is directing episodes of some of the very best television shows, including another favorite of mine, Legion. Welcome back, the incredibly cool, kind, and gifted Keith Gordon. Wow, that was like about as nice an introduction as one could imagine. Thank you. I I, I will try to live up to that. <laughs> you know what's weird that, like I, a complete fool. that I <laughs> that I just realized um, one of my more recent guests uh, was was Leah Thompson, and oh, 
and and she was she couldn't have been more of a delight to talk with as well and she's a great actress uh, turn turn director and <laughs> i just realized as I, as I said like i i hope this episode isn't the jaws 3 of our trilogy or our podcast franchise and i'm thinking oh wait a minute leah thompson was in jaws 3 and of course you were in Jaws 2. Jaws 2, yeah. That's, I actually thought you were making a, a joke with me because of that, <laughs> yeah. because of Jaws 2. It's my, my experience is with, with, with sequels. But I, I can guarantee you, I, I don't know Leah well. I've met her a couple of times. She seems wonderful. I've always thought she's yeah. wildly talented, and she seems like a sweet person. Very much um, so. But I guarantee you she will not be offended by a joking reference to Jaws 3, because those <laughs> of us who, as actors, took jobs in sequels, Kind of knew what we were doing. I, I you know, sure. I don't. I, very few actors look back and go, "God, Jaws three is the thing I'm really proud of," or Jaws two in my case. So uh, you're pretty safe. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I just think it's funny how sometimes I think uh, our subconscious kind of kind of works with us in, in regards to uh, introductions, at least. But so <laughs> the last time we spoke, you had worked on another great season of uh, Noel Hawley's Fargo, and so I gather. From from that positive experience, uh, you were recruited for his other TV project, Legion, and I, I'm one of those guys that is currently burnt out on on you know Marvel and DC and comic book movies. I'm, I mean, I'll go see sure. them to be a part of the conversation, but I'm just not as overly enthused. And then, I something about Legion just appealed to me on all levels from from the beginning, pretty much from the from the pilot. And a lot of well, it it's was such a difference. I mean, it, it's so not a yeah, it's so not a Marvel. Com- I mean, it is a Marvel comic thing, but I mean, you know, Noah sort of. I think his whole thing going in was, how do I completely reinvent the genre and make it something completely other than what people think of? Right. Uh, I mean, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm not. I've never been a big superhero guy. It's just not my level, area of interest. I don't see most of the Marvel movies. I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. They're usually beautifully well made. They mm-hmm. hire really terrific actors and directors i appreciate them but it's just not what you know i'm it's just not my area of like but legion to me is a whole other thing legion is you know if, if stanley kubrick and david lynch you know made a marvel comic movie what you'd get and to me that's a whole other beast i mean it's like it's like noah using that that sort of world as a jumping off point to explore much more complicated ideas and themes and film storytelling and uh so that you know that's so far my only experience with the Marvel Universe and will likely stay there. I mean, it's 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 you know it, it it's it's sort of its own little corner of that, which is it, it's a very 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 different cousin to to most of it. Um, and yeah, I was actually supposed to do it in season one, and then the schedules just moved around and I couldn't, which was really frustrating to me because I love Noah. I think Noah is one of our most exciting storytellers right now. I just think his writing, his directing, you know, his vision is amazing, and he's a great guy, and he's really fun to work for. And they had asked me to do Legion in the first season, and then the whole season got pushed back. Mm-hmm. And I had already had another commitment I, you know, to doing uh, Homeland, and so I couldn't do it in the first season, which was really frustrating. Um, so I was really glad to finally get to be a part of it, uh, if a little late to the game. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because uh, one of my friends, I mean, the, he's, he's just seen the pilot, and he kind of went, I, I do like the show, but it reminds me of... You know, a visual style that is very Lynchian and kind of like a, almost like a, a 1990s music video aesthetic. And I said, you know what? To me, that's a good thing because I thought of Mark Romanek. Like his, his visual sure. style, yeah, is very Kubrickian, like you mentioned. And of course, 
Uh, he made some of our greatest music videos of all time. And when I was watching Legion, I'm like, this is kind of appealing to that that aesthetic, that era that I just that's kind of my foundation. That's kind of where I you know became um, you know a fan of film outside of Escapist Entertainment. I started looking at it as an art form, and I felt like Legion is really treating this universe in an interesting way that is sometimes challenging, but really uh, of its own. And it's also including one of my favorite new acting teams on TV with um, Dan Stevens and Rachel Keller, I believe. Yeah. Yes. They're fantastic on that show, really. Well, you know, really kind of down the line, and it's one of the things that Noah has a genius. I mean, I don't want to be boring about saying how genius Noah is, but the guy deserves it. Oh, no, it. go you ahead. Know, <laughs> one of the things he's done incredibly is, is his casting. I mean, all three, all three seasons of, of, of Fargo, Legion, I mean, he, he has an incredible nose for actors. Uh, I mean, Rachel hadn't done all that much when he used her in Fargo in the second season. You right. know, I mean, mm-hmm. she was a bit of a discovery. I mean, she was just starting, and he kind of found her. Um, yeah, and, and if you look throughout his, all of his projects, he's very bold with his casting, and that he doesn't hire people that are always the obvious. Um, you know, there are people that you know people forget how whatever, whatever how good Ted Danson can be as an actor. You know, and then you know in Fargo, you suddenly were like, oh right, like that like, guy can really act, and yeah. you know he does that a lot, where he'll take people that either people have forgotten how good they are or didn't even know how good they were or give them a chance to do something very different than what they've done before. And it always seems to work. I mean, it's one thing to be bold with that and, and you know, have some successes, some failures, but he seems to have an incredible nose for who can stretch, you know, what, what, how they'll fit in well. He also seems to have an incredible nose for hiring really nice people, which is great. I mean, you know, he doesn't seem to hire a lot of crazy people. <laughs> um, and I don't know how much that's... I've never actually talked about, like, well, how much vetting do you do? But, you know, when you're doing these ensemble cast pieces, if anybody's a real problem, then it kind of can throw the whole thing off. Yeah, I bet. Um, if, if there's a diva or if there's a... And, you know, now through three experiences on his stuff... He just seems to be able to avoid that, and and I don't know whether he just does his homework about who he hires or it's part of his instincts. But they always seem to be actors who get the spirit of, yeah, this is I'm one part of a bigger piece, and 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 it's not just about me, and that's 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 really important for this kind of thing. Yeah, and in particular, uh, you know, Dan Stevens is somebody obviously people became familiar with 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 Downton Abbey, but then I saw this this little indie indie film called The Guest. Uh, and, and I, I I thought it was like again another throwback kind of '90s movie where it, it just felt like something like oh yeah I totally would have rented this with my friends back in the video store days, uh, and you know the Adam Wingard kind of you know blew up as an indie filmmaker around that time and I just thought like who is okay I know I know of the name and I wasn't obsessed with Downton Abbey the way most people are but when I my first exposure to Dan Stevens was with the guest and I just thought okay the, I'm on board for whatever this guy is a part of too and of course casting him in Legion well that hooked me right away as well so uh, and I and he just seems like a really down to earth cool guy I've heard him on podcast interviews too and just um yeah count me in as a lifelong fan of his and he's just, you know, the ease with which he can throw himself into different things. I mean, in Legion, you know, he's playing so many different facets of this guy. Yeah, and, no and And he just, it just comes very naturally to him. I mean, he's not somebody who has to, like, at least on the outward level, 
you know, I mean, God knows how hard he's probably working inside, but, but he seems to have this facility to tap into different things. And even when in, in the episodes where he's more of a split personality, you know, whether it's changing his voice, changing his body language, change, I mean, you know, there was that amazing episode this year where you saw all these different iterations of, of his character yeah. and, you know, what his possible lives could have been. And he, it just seems like he can do that without it seeming like he's breaking a sweat. And that's really impressive and, and hard to do. I mean, I, I'm sure he works very hard, um, but it's not... There are some actors who are like trying to do that on a TV schedule, and that's the thing about a show like Legion. And I, and I, I found it when I, I when I when I finally got to work on it this year. It was like, wow, this is this is the most ambitious show I've ever worked on. Yeah, because it's not it's not an HBO show where they're spending you know eight million, ten million dollars an episode and throwing money at it and shooting for thirty days. I mean, it's it's tons of special effects. It's very sophisticated. It's very visually complicated. It's you know you're you're running around all over the place. And there's a lot of character stuff and drama, and you're doing it on a basic cable budget. I mean, FX doesn't you know have that kind of super budget sort of money, um, mm. so you're doing it fast and and quick, and having to make fast decisions, and you can't spend all day on one two page scene. And and for somebody like Dan, that means an incredible amount of heavy lifting because he's got to be doing all this stuff with the character and, 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 and playing all these different elements, and it's not like you have the time you'd have on a feature to, well, let's try this, let's try that, let's investigate this, well, let's rethink and go back. I mean, you're, you're just having to keep moving, and, and he just kind of very fearlessly uh, just dives in, and, and he obviously does a lot of homework on his own, so he comes in sort of armed with, you know, what he, where he's going to go with things, and that's, that makes it, not only makes it great, it makes it possible. I mean, that, that show would just fall apart if you had somebody in the center that didn't have that sort of facility because you just never would make the schedule or the budget. Yeah, it just seems like one of those shows that rides on instinct. And I get that sense. Like, yeah, it's, of course there's a script. Of course there's a lot put together and thought. And it's a very thoughtful show in terms of the psychology of the characters and you know some of the twists and turns that you know we experience as, as an audience. But I'm very curious, since you had the pleasure of directing the, the final episode of the last season, um, which turned out to be rather divisive. And that's, you know, I mm-hmm. sent you an email about it and just kind of went, I'm not sure how I feel. And I'm not saying that I had a negative response the way some TV critics seem to have, but I wasn't sure about that choice. And I know we kind of want to. You know, not not to spoil too much and kind of be a little bit vague for those who haven't caught up, but right. let's just say our hero kind of takes a turn that I'm still trying to process and accept. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing either, but what was it like for you uh, coming on board to direct that particular episode? Well, it was clear. I mean, you know, when you read the script, it's clear that it was going to kind of freak some people out. I mean, sure. there were definitely elements of where it was going to go that was, and that's, again, why I love Noah, because he's kind of spent the series going one direction, now going, okay, now it's time to start exploring some other uh, other things and, mm-hmm. and going some new places with this character. Um, and where it goes isn't shocking to people who know the original comic, because in some ways it's just the show catching up to where the, where the comic itself is. Okay. Um, yeah. but, but it spent a lot of time getting you to invest in its own very different reality, and now it's going, yes, that was a reality, but here's another part of the reality. And it does it, and again, I, this is tricky, because I do want to be vague for people who haven't seen it, you know, but I don't want to be so vague that people are going, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> I know, um, it's tricky, yeah. But, but, but what Noah did in terms of the way he did the twist of the character 
is much more real and disturbing and grounded. I mean, the easy way out would have been to have the character turn in a very comic sort, comic book sort of way mm-hmm. uh, that was sort of, um, you know, that you wouldn't take that seriously, that it would be like, oh, well, you know, people in this universe change all the time, and we see dark sides and lighter sides. And, but, but the stuff that came out in this is realer and more disturbing because it's kind of grounded in real stuff in the real world. Yeah. And and yeah. moral stuff that we that are that are is disturbing stuff and it doesn't feel like oh it's a comic book it feels like oh that's kind of like real life and uh, and you know obviously it's very very intentional and, and in a way Noah is doing the thing which I love him for which is not letting the audience off easy and going okay you know you've now been invested in a certain reality and I'm going to really challenge that I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to make you ponder and I'm sure he knew that some people would be really pissed off and that some people would be really moved and, and fascinated and, and drawn in further and you know but he's he's just never been afraid of that I mean I encountered that I did the finale of the third season of, of Fargo and it was the same thing you know mm, in that yeah. the ending of that really divided people and I understood why I love it. it it very much speaks to my sensibility um, but I knew that some people aren't going to like this and he was you know he never he never expressed concern about those things I mean I never got like ooh I wonder if you know people are going to be upset he nor did, by the way, was he focused on being a provocateur. I mean, nor was like, oh, it's going to be so cool to piss people. He just goes, I think, with what speaks to him on a story level, what excites him, what interests him. I, I feel like with Noah, there's always an element of, well, what would I want to see as a storyteller? And that's what he tells. Um, but knowing that not everybody's going to see it the same way. Um, I mean, he's a very zen guy. He's not somebody who's, who's on at least on an outwardly obvious level, sweating about what everybody else thinks. I mean, I think he's really true to his his instincts and and uh kind of tells the story from 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 inside him of what he's excited about yeah and that made, that makes total sense and you know you mentioned it being kind of a you know a potent ending to, or not ending i should say but just a, a an interesting turn for for the character that i you know obviously adheres to the source material but i think in the era of me too and just where we're at um you know, sociologically right now, I think it it touched a nerve. And I think that's a good thing on on one hand, but it's also, um, you know, something that's a little difficult to sit with. And again, you know, we're trying to be vague, but it's also um, a direction that I think will ultimately pay off. You know, it's like, obviously we still have another season to go or hopefully more, but we'll see. Um, I think I, I just trust his instincts as a storyteller, uh, wherever the story tends to, winds up going. Yeah, no, and I'm sort of fascinated to see because I don't know. I mean, I sort of asked him, and, and you know, he was somewhat reserved about talking about where he saw it going. I mean, mm-hmm. even with me working on it, which which I again respected, and that was fine. And I think he's also probably still working things through always. I mean, you know, he's somebody who has a really, and I think a lot of great. Artists, directors, whoever storytellers have that thing of of you know both he has very strong ideas of what he wants to do, but he's also very open to things evolving. You know, I don't think he locks himself in way ahead of time and like this is what's going to be. You know, I think he has an instinct, but I think he also stays very open to evolution as he works on it, as he thinks about it, as time passes. So, you know, I know he has ideas about where the third season goes, but I'm sure he's also even now as he's you know I'm, they're writing it right now. I'm sure. It's evolving as he's putting himself, you know, head and soul into it, and he's also making a movie at the same time. So oh he's also the most insane workaholic I've ever. I, I've never <laughs> met anybody who can do. 
I mean, if I tried to do what he does, I would be dead. I really don't understand how he does what he does and is still like a really nice, easy, relaxed person. It's really, really strange. Um, you know, he's right now he's directing his first feature film for Fox Searchlight. He's prepping season three of Legion. Um, you know, he's got other projects he wants to direct that he's writing. He's, you know, last year he like, was writing a novel and he was finishing, you know, season three of Fargo while prepping season two of Legion. I mean, you know, and he's got family and he lives in Austin and in L.A. I mean, I, I honestly don't know how he does it. And I don't know, how, especially don't know how he does it without becoming a screaming lunatic uh, and stays sort of very just low-key and just you know, calm, and, but he is very gifted in that area, and, you know, he got the right genetics for what he wants to do, which is a, a tremendous amount simultaneously. I mean, we have a project, a TV project in development at FX that we're working on together, and I mean, oh, that'd be great. I, I don't know when he sleeps. I mean, well, it would be wonderful. I mean, we'll see if it comes to fruition, but just, just, you know, just working around him and the people at his company. I mean, you know, John Cameron, who runs the company with him, is an incredible guy, and I mean, he's, you know, he, he, he puts good people around himself, um, so, but yeah, how he does what he does is really beyond me because I'm exhausted doing one episode of Legion. And by the time we were done with that episode, I was like, I need to sleep for two weeks. <laughs> and, you know, for Noah, that was one tiny part of the Noah empire going on all simultaneously. Yeah. No, well, when, when that episode was over, I was like, damn, <laughs> you know, there, there is so much going on, uh, visually. It's, it's incredibly ambitious. It's an, and to think about how you achieve some of the, uh, you know, the visual trickery, or at least, um, you know, just kind of what kind of what that show brings to the table uh, in terms of a visual palette. I'm always like, kind of, there's there's usually an, a, a a series of moments in the show where I'm like, I wish I could just frame this and put this on my wall because uh, there's so many great moments, and I'm I'm glad that yeah, you no, it's, 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 it's and it's you know, and the funny thing about working for Noah is that. There's actually much more freedom than there are on most TV shows, and that's what's so interesting. Is he's got he's so distinctive, um, and yet as a director, he kind of wants you to surprise him. I mean, that's what he actually literally says all the time. Good. You know, he's the only the only way to disappoint him as a, as a showrunner is is to bore him, is to give him exactly what's on the page and nothing more. Um, so there's an expectation when you do Fargo or you do Legion that you're not going to just do the way it's written and sort of be obvious about it. You're going to kind of, as a director, bring something to it. What's fascinating is that he manages to communicate just enough as the voice of the show so that people aren't just going off in random directions and it seems like, okay, there's no continuity here. And his cinematographers that he hires, are, are again, are great at walking that line of keeping the voice of the show consistent enough that it's the same show, but still being open to experimentation and doing things differently and pushing the envelope. And, and that's all very tricky. I mean, it, it's, you know, TV's funny that way because a lot of shows, as a director, you feel like, well, there's nothing I can do here. I mean, I, I, if I didn't show up, it would be the exact same show, and I've tried to not work on those shows so much. Um, but working with somebody like, no, there's not, you actually feel like you're directing and you're, you're bringing things to the table and you're kind of walking onto the set and going, you know what, I know it says this, but let's do this instead because it's going to be cooler and just trusting that Noah's going to be okay with it. Um, but it's a really hard thing to do that and not have the show feel random. Um, and, and I mean, I know that Legion sometimes has an element of randomness built into it, but that's, in, that's intentional randomness as opposed to a director coming in and just kind of doing their thing and not caring about what's going on. But a lot of that is the cinematographers. I mean, you know, Polly, who shot the episode I did, was just great because, you know, she knows the show inside now, but she also 
wasn't stuck in what had been done before, but she could still say, here's the palette that we've used. Now let's talk about where we're going to violate that, where we're going to stick to it, where we're going to challenge it, you know, and, and, and that, that dialogue was something you could actually have. And, and so it kind of gives you the ability to, it gives you enough of a framework that you can then be very free within it. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get the sense at all that it's, you know, you're just a work for hire to, you know, come in and point and shoot and that's it. You, you brought your own sensibility to, to, to the project. And I got that sense. And it actually made me, like, the moment I saw the, <laughs> at the end of the episode, the director credit, uh, part of me just wanted to applaud, even though I was watching it alone. Because um, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I'm really excited for, for, you know, your future as a director. And I want to see more projects from it. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm totally happy, uh, you know, if, if this, if, if you wind up just, I don't think you're going to just wind up directing, you know, whatever popular and great TV show is on right now. Um, but at the same time, I think you are bringing, you know, a, a, your own sensibility to it as well. So that, that makes me happy <laughs> as a well, fan. Well, thank you. That's very nice. I mean, and, 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 you know, part of it is also trying to be smart about what shows I do and working yeah. on shows like working with Noah or like working on The Leftovers. Or like, I mean, there, there are shows that are more director-friendly. Um, you know, my, my couple of experiences on, on network have mostly made me run away from network TV because that's the general rule there. And I'm sure there have been exceptions, but the general experience in network TV really is you, you are purely a functionary. I mean, as a director, you're like, you know, they have a way they do things and you're kind of there to not rock the boat. Uh, you know, whereas cable, there is more flexibility and then certain kinds of shows on cable, there's yet more flexibility again where you can actually start to feel like, Oh, I'm act, I'm part of the process here. TV will always be by nature needs to be a showrunner's medium. Yeah. Um, you know, there needs to be that overall vision because otherwise it just it doesn't add up to stuff. But but the best showrunners seem to know how to tap into the talents of the people that they hire and give them flexibility to bring stuff to the table while still fitting. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been lucky, but also trying to be deliberate about what I choose to do. And sometimes I've passed on, you know, even really good television shows where I feel like either I've heard or it's clear to me watching or whatever that it's a really good show, but I'm not, as a director, there's not much I'm going to be able to bring to this. It has mm. such a specific locked-in way everything is done that there's really nothing to add, and they're not looking for somebody to come in and add. And, and I just don't feel like I'm probably the best. I mean, I can do that. I've done it a couple of times. It just tends to not be fun. Whereas working on a whatever, a Better Call Saul, you know, there are just shows where the people who run the show are excited by and delighted by new ideas brought in by directors, actors, cinematographers, you know, and there are shows where your job is to shoot what I wrote on the page and get close-ups of each person saying their words and and that's your job and do it the way we've done in all our other episodes and it's not horrible like it's still a, look I don't want to complain too much it's a great way to make a living <laughs> but it's a lot less interesting when you're in that position yeah you need some artistic so, freedom yeah to express yeah, and yet yeah and, and while staying within the general boundaries but the other thing is I'm also cutting back on TV right now because I'm trying to get back to my own projects and right. one of the realities I found is because I'm not Noah Hawley I'm not somebody who can do 20 things simultaneously is that I've had you know feature projects I've wanted to do for in cases like 15 years, uh, and I've got television projects that I want to do where I'm kind of helping create them, and I would be in more in that showrunner voice position, and all those kept getting pushed aside because I was getting the opportunity to work on all these wonderful television projects, and which was great. I mean, I was learning a lot and working with incredible people, but I finally kind of had a look in the mirror and go, well, 
you, something's going to have to give because mm-hmm. right now your projects are getting no attention. They're not moving forward. You've got partners who are getting fed up and annoyed that you're never available, and you keep taking another job and another job and another job. And at some point, it's like, well, are you full-time directing television episodes, and that's what you're doing, and that's it? Or are you trying to be a filmmaker and a show creator and a, who's directing also because it's something you like to do and it pays the rent and it teaches you and it makes you grow, but it's not, that's not your identity. And so I've kind of come to a bit of a crossroads where I've had to, and I've done much more for the last year, saying no to a lot of stuff, sometimes amazing stuff, so that I can put time into my own projects. And, and that's, it's painful and hard because, you know, people send you good material and your first instinct is, ooh, this is cool, I would want to work on it. But I just learned the lesson that, yeah, I can do that, but don't kid yourself that you're going to then have those financing meetings on the movie that you want to make. You know, you're not going to be doing both. Yeah, I would like to see uh, a credit written and directed by Keith Gordon um, in the near future for sure. I mean, I know this is, this is kind of popping up uh, recently too. It's like a lot of these anthology shows are kind of interesting, uh, whether if it's like a, yes. a Black Mirror or whatever. But, I mean, that that seems to give... You know, like individual, like you you have the ability to tell your own sort of short stories in in a, in a short Absolutely. span of time. I could see Love that to work. On. I, I early on when I was first doing some TV, I worked on a couple of anthology type shows, and it is a very different experience, and it is much closer to making your own film because there is no template that you have to stick to. There's no style. There's no look. You're casting your particular show with the actors that work for that story um and, and that is really fun i mean it, it is it is you know a midway point between doing your own feature and doing an episode of an ongoing story uh i mean obviously it has to be good i mean if the writing isn't great and all that it can be more painful because you're working on something that isn't thrilling and and any anthology show by nature is going to be uneven i mean they just always are even the best of them even the you know you look at the twilight zone you're looking at not every episode is going to be a gem sure. so you're you're hoping to get a great episode but you know but i find anthologies really fun as a filmmaker i also find them fun to watch because i love short films and it's like each one becomes its own short film um so i, I yeah i'm i it, i would love to do a black mirror i would you know i think there's a lot of stuff that's going on now that, i think black mirror opened the door uh, to anthology shows, I was always a fan of them as a as a viewer, and there were you know there were a lot when I was a kid. I mean, I you know in, in the earlier golden age of television, and then they sort of disappeared, and now they're seem to be coming back because Black Mirror did so well, and so you're seeing a lot of different genres and different styles and different approaches to anthology shows, and I think that's great. And in fact, among the things that I want to get done, or I, I've had some anthology show ideas that. I've had for a while and, again, got shot down all the time by people saying, nobody's doing anthology shows, you can't do them, they don't make money, they don't, you know, and now the, the atmosphere is changing, so I may be able to revisit some of those projects. Yeah, and I noticed, um, you know, places like Amazon are hosting things like your your, your Phil K. Dick anthology show, and mm-hmm. uh, oh, there's a one coming up pretty soon, uh, Castle Rock, for, for you Stephen King fans out there. Um, and even another actor turned director, Bobcat Goldthwait, just put out his own um, yes. anthology show, and I think I think that's a, a really interesting direction. I really like that idea, and uh, I could certainly see that working out f- for you. And you know, even, <sighs> this just occurred to me too. Is like, I wonder if somebody would consider doing that with with the work of Vonnegut. Like, I mean, a lot of his stories, I don't know, can be as self-contained in a short film or, you know, an, an hour episode, but 
I, I don't know. I, he's got such a wealth of material that I think people could, you know, expand that into a, an anthology series, a whole universe. Yeah, I, there's no question you could. I mean, I don't, I don't know with Kurt what the you know there might be also rights questions and things yeah, because there was yeah. the piece that was done for PBS. Um, uh, and I'm blanking on the name, but that actually incorporated a lot of the short pieces into one larger piece. Mm. So in some sense, they've already been done, okay. and I don't know if there would be obstacles to revisiting that. I, I it, it's, a, it's a great question because yes, I think a lot of his stories would be wonderful in that kind of you know, and I and I do think anthology pieces about you know, using an individual writer's work is a really interesting way to go. I've, but I think there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, I've had a documentary thing about the legal system I wanted to do for years, mm. you know, with with different directors who have different points of view and different because as a possible showrunner or creator of that kind of a show. Part of the excitement would be reaching out to directors and filmmakers that you admire and saying, listen, I want to give you space to do what you do. And I want to kind of create an atmosphere where, like, okay, here's the budget limit, but within that, you know, you've got a lot of freedom. And, and that, to me, is really exciting to empower other filmmakers that I'm a fan of. It's like, what a cool thing that would be. So I've got a couple of different things in that arena that I would love to see come to fruition, you know, because the joy of of that process, that kind of creative process is also very exciting to me, you know, going, being able to go to somebody that you've always liked and say, hey, you want to come play, and you will have complete freedom, you know, as long as you stay within these few financial boundaries and stuff uh, and, and length of show, but um, I would love to see that happen, and, and so, yeah, I'd love to work on them, but I'd also love to help create some of those, because I think those are just, just amazing sort of grounds for telling stories. Yeah, well, just talking with you, I get the sense that you'd make for a great showrunner. And since you're a director yourself, you would work with uh, great uh, filmmakers that maybe have flew under the radar. Similar to what we talked about last time, um, we're just underrated directors. Uh, I know we barely scratched the surface on that topic, but I thought we'd uh, just focus on some specific titles from a specific decade this time. Uh and that would be the 90s, because that's kind of like I mentioned, where uh, I consider to be my formative years, the, the, the era of where I was like, okay, movies don't just have to be, you know, big explosions and uh, escapist entertainment that I rush out and see um, on opening night or whatever, but things I go to the video store to seek out. And, you know, it sort of happened when I discovered Alan Moyle's Pump Up the Volume, that a movie can move you and, and, and actually feel make you feel more connected in, in some way. So, I mean, um, I pose the question to you, in terms of some films and some underseen gems that you think people should seek out and, and why they specifically mean a lot to you from the 90s. Yeah, and, and it's, an, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting question. And we went back and forth a bit, you know, an email about it, which is because there's all sorts of underknown projects. I mean, there are projects that you know, kind of people heard of but never got the uh, critical support they deserve. There are projects that, that were famous but were dismissed that later come around and people decide were classics. I mean, there's projects that just never got attention, nobody heard of at all. Um, you know, there's there's a whole range within within the world of underrated or underknown. There's all sorts of variations. So, yeah, I, I put together some titles and things, and, you know, I'm, I... I sort of happy to start talking through some of these and you can jump in and <laughs> uh, you know um, just to start randomly um, in terms of things that people people I things I would suggest people seek out if they didn't see them um, uh, there's a there's a film called uh, Savior that was made in 1998 uh, with Dennis Quaid it was directed by a guy named I'm gonna now I'm gonna butcher this guy's last name Peter hmm. Antichovich I believe 
uh, who's never done another film that has gotten much attention. Uh, and Savior got, you know, had a few huge critical uh, supporters, but it, it, it just it died at the box office. And I think it's one of the most powerful war films ever made. Um, it's a really incredible, incredibly upsetting and moving piece of filmmaking. I think it's Dennis Quaid's maybe best work, and I think he's a wildly underrated, talking about underrated or underappreciated you know, actor. I think Quaid's done a lot of incredible stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, um, but, far, far From Heaven. I, I think he was even nominated uh, for that, but that's just one of my favorite performances from him, period. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he's he's one of those people, and, and you don't know why. It's like people keep, kind of keep forgetting he's like a great actor. I feel yeah. like there's a certain bunch of actors that like, like everybody gets reminded, like a Far From Heaven comes out, and he goes, oh, right, Dennis Quaid's a really amazing actor. And then by two years later, they're like, oh, yeah, Dennis Quaid. And I don't know why. He <laughs> yeah. like, doesn't, like, people don't remember. This guy's done incredible work and created an amazing array of characters over a very long career and just doesn't seem to get the ongoing credit for it. And sort of this movie that he started, in sort of his, it's sort of he and the movie have the same curse, or it's kind of like people didn't recognize, I think, how powerful it was. Uh, it basically is a, it's about an American um, whose family is murdered by, in, a, in a terrorist act, and mm. he goes on kind of a murder spree himself to, to, to get even for it. But that's not the story of the movie. That's, like the, that's, the, that's the first 15 minutes of the film. Huh. Um, it's really about what happens to him. He ends up joining the Foreign Legion to sort of get away from being thrown in jail for his revenge killings that he did. And, and he ends up in the middle, as part of the Foreign Legion, in the middle of the Serbo-Croatian War. And in the middle of war, sort of rediscovering his humanity. And it's incredibly upsetting and disturbing and real, and you kind of have the feeling of, oh, yeah, this is the kind of moral murkiness and muck that you find in a real war zone where it's not like the movies and where good and bad is a mess and where a lot of it is about innocent people who aren't on any side getting caught up and killed. And and watching this man who's kind of, when his family died, kind of just shut his heart and his mind down altogether and became a human robot, sort of rediscovering that in the midst of the carnage. And hmm. it's just just really, you know, it's not a light, easy film. I mean, it's not a film to watch on date night um, because it's, you know, it, it doesn't prevent, present a really great picture of humanity. But I think it's a really important film. And uh, one of those films, and I think the best anti-war films do that, is a reminder uh, that war isn't like in the movies. Um, right. That war is ugly and horrifying and insane and illogical and irrational and, in most cases, pointless. Um, and it's anyway, it's, it's one of those very powerful films. It, it does exist on DVD, so it is rentable and findable. And, uh, you know, I would highly recommend it to people when you're in the mood for something challenging and grown up. Yeah, I wonder if it got overshadowed a bit from, I mean, obviously that was, that was the year of the Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan. I believe ninety eight. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it might well have been. Um, yeah, because I don't remember. I don't know it, what kind of release it got. Maybe it played the art houses or something. But um, it, it didn't get much of a release, and I, yeah. and I can't speak to why. It, it was a very limited release. Uh, in fact, I don't. I didn't see it in the theaters. It came and went really fast, and it was only later when it came out on DVD that somebody recommended it to me, and they said you'll appreciate this movie. You should really see it. And I saw it. And I was like, oh, holy crap! That's incredible. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's life in the, in the theaters was, and I, I, I think it was put out by a very small company. I don't think it, you know, it just, I don't think it ever had much of a chance from the beginning. Hmm. Um, the critics were generally, I think, sure. really supportive. Um, but that's one that I, you know, I really love from that era. Um, another overlooked one that I, you know, that I think is an amazing film and frustratingly does not have a decent, 
a home video release. There, there is a, a, a DVD, but it's you know four three, not one eight five, and it's you know, mm-hmm. is a film called American Heart that Martin Bell made in, in nineteen ninety two, I believe it was. Starring, I believe, um, my favorite actor, Jeff Bridges. Am I? Is that Jeff the Bridges. Right one? Yeah. Oh. That is that is correct. And yeah, I saw this a long it is, time and again, ago. It's great though. Well. If I mean, if you've seen it, you know. I mean, it's I mean Bridges, who again is one of our very best actors, not not as overlooked as Dennis Quaid, but I still think underappreciated for how great he is. I mean, he's appreciated, but but he still doesn't. You know, people will talk about <laughs> whatever Robert De Niro or Daniel Day Lewis, <laughs> and um, you know, to me, Jeff Bridges deserves to be in that same conversation of he's the very greatest of our actors. Absolutely, I mean, to me, he's. The, the depth and, and range that he's shown over and over and over again. And to me, this is among his most remarkable performances. Um, and, and, and he does what he does so well, which is it's quiet. I mean, I think part of the reason that Bridges doesn't get some of the same attention is while he is radically different in everything he ever does, he does it subtly enough that it's kind of, if you're not thinking about it, you just assume, oh, he, he must be sort of like that until you see a bunch of movies and realize, yeah, but the same person can't be like all of that. Um, <laughs> And this is one of those pieces where he plays a, you know, a really hardened ex-con getting out of prison and trying to restart his life. And his performance is amazing because it's real and he's scary and he's angry and he's withdrawn, but he still manages to be completely empathetic and heartbreaking, but there's no sugarcoating. And I think a lot of times when you see people in a movie like that where, you know, they're getting out of prison and trying to reconnect with their son and trying to build a new life, there's something sugary or sappy about it. And neither the film nor his performance has any of that. It is, you know, you believe this guy seems like an ex-con, and you root for him, but you also know this could go bad really easily. And, and that was one of the things I really respected about the movie, is that it did not feel like a Hollywood approach to a sort of social issue movie. It felt like, here it is, and, you know, people are in jail for reasons, and they're scary people, and they're violent, and they're and yet they're still human beings, of course, and, yeah. if, and they need a chance to rebuild their lives. Um, and it's just, it was it was it was just one of those films that just felt honest in a genre that usually feels to me dishonest. Uh, Martin Bell directed it, who also did Streetwise, the great documentary, and it and the film has some of that feel to it. It has a very documentary like feel. I mean, mm, it, it yeah. feels like um, it just has that very real feeling um, in the performances and the way it's shot. Um, you know, everybody in the film feels like it's you're watching almost through a hidden camera. Um, favorite overlooked actresses in it as a woman named Lucinda Jenny, who I've been lucky enough to work with a couple of times, who's just just a, a terrific, terrific actress who's, you know, again, never gotten that much attention, um, but is wonderful and has been wonderful in a whole breadth of things. And she plays his girlfriend when he comes out of, you know, they meet and then they sort of start to have an affair and, and, and she kind of, you know, stays, manages to stay with Bridges, which is not easy in kind of creating this very real, um, sense of like, oh, yeah, this is what pe- this, these two people really would be like if you kind of spied on them and, you know, had a camera hidden in their, in their kitchen, in their bedroom, and, you know, you get a sense of, yeah, I believe them. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a remarkable film in that sense, and it's a film that, again, got completely overlooked. It was put out by a small company. It got amazing reviews, but did not seem to attract an audience, died a very quick death at the th- in the theater, and then... Uh, didn't come out at all on home video for years, and when it finally did come out, as I said, it's only ever come out in a you know full frame, not very good transfer. Um, really frustrating because I mean it's a film that I think deserves better treatment, 
And uh, but it's still worth seeing. I mean, I'd say to people, you know, if you can find it for for rent or find it, you know, on on a on a streaming service. I don't know if it's on Netflix or, uh, you know, it's, it's really Amazon. worth seeing. And and it's oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well. If, I mean, if, you, if you're a fan of that genre and or at all a fan of, of Bridges' work, I think it's a, it's a really spectacular and sort of underknown and overlooked movie. Um, yeah, and I think this again this this happened. I probably saw it when I was working at the video store and would go through what I call my my actor binges. Like um, I think I probably started with Sean Penn and just watched every single Sean Penn performance, and then uh, Jeff Bridges came along and. I wound up seeing, and I still consider this to be my favorite acting performance of all time, and that is Jeff Bridges in Fearless. Um, oh, I just, yes. He should have won every award in the book for, for that role, and uh, I'm glad that he finally did, but it was just like, oh, but he's been great so many times before, crazy heart people, <laughs> you know? And yeah, but I just hope I just hope people continue, and I think that happened with Hell or High Water recently. Uh, is just yeah they're constantly reminded of how great he is in general. So, well, you know it's it's that weird thing, and 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 you know films like everything else are somewhat a meritocracy, but it's not it's not fair. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there it, it, name an art form, name it, you know whatever, and sometimes the people that do the best and most amazing work get the attention, and sometimes they don't, and it's not always. You know the people at the very top of the uh, of the visibility list. You know sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. And and Bridges at least says yes. I think over the years people have slowly come to realize what an incredible body of work the man has. But I think what you're talking about is a great thing for people to do generally. I think I think whether it's binging a director, a, an actor, a screenwriter, I think it's a really interesting way to to sort of get, really get to see somebody's work is to see a lot of it near each other. Um, I love doing that, too. Yeah. But I think Bridges is one of those people who finally has earned, I mean, not, not earned, is finally getting his long-ago-earned props. But even now, I, I still feel like, you know, has not quite gotten the level of, of people, you know, that he's one of the great film actors of all time. And I think, I think he's, still, he's still taking those last few steps to people seeing that about this amazing body of work that the man's done over so long. And I, I agree. And Fearless is another one of those movies that, it's funny, you know, it's not an overlooked movie. It, it got attention all that, but it's a somewhat overlooked movie. I'm, I'm surprised at how many younger people, for example, when I interact with, who I mentioned that movie to, who don't know it. You know, um, yeah. you know, I mean, for those of us who are a little older and were film fans in, I think it was 92 or 93, I guess maybe it was when it came out, um, you know, most of us saw it and realized it was an incredible performance, but also an incredible piece of filmmaking. I mean, I think it's arguably Peter Weir's best film, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just oh, it definitely in- for me, yeah. Incredibly moving. I mean, there's a sequence in it that, again, I don't want to give away too much, although you kind of know it, and, you know, involves an airplane, and that is one of the most upsetting and moving and beautiful and lyrical and horrifying all at once sequences of filmmaking I've ever seen. Um, it, it's just kind of mind blowing, and it takes a situation that we've seen in movies a thousand times, and turns it on its head and puts you in a whole different place. Um, it's the use of music, everything about that, and that's one of those films. It's like, was it overlooked? Well, 
not really, not in the way that some of these other films I'm mentioning were in that no one's ever heard of them. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when I meet young filmmakers who are like, say, 22, and they're like, oh, yeah, I never saw that movie. I heard it was good. And I feel like I've heard that over and over and over again. To me, that's overlooked. You know, it's overlooked now. It wasn't overlooked maybe in the, at the moment, but it, there's a generation that doesn't know that film, and, and I, I feel like, boy, that's a movie that anybody interested in filmmaking, acting, and that's a film you need to see. Oh uh, yeah, and and so definitely my glad you mentioned it. <laughs> my favorite my favorite use of a U two song period happens uh, oh. late, later in the film. It's <laughs> just so moving. Yeah. That's one of those movies that yeah, Criterion. You should totally put this out and give it a ton of extras and interviews. Uh, I'm I'm sure that's true for a lot more of your titles. Um, in fact, Directors Club uh, recently uh, tackled a uh, Robert Altman Redux episode where. They kind of go back. I think they got all the way up to Popeye and just tackled the world of, of, of great Robert Alton films. So I don't think they have gotten to one of your suggestions here that I haven't seen yet, but I'm, I'm very curious about Vincent and Theo. Uh, yeah, Vincent and Theo to me is, 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 well, it's a remarkable movie, and it's an interesting story because it was originally made as a miniseries mm. uh, in Europe, and then Altman did a cut-down version of it and released it theatrically. And personally, I feel the cut-down theatrical version is a wildly better piece of filmmaking, which oh, is really rare. rare. I mean, normally when something gets cut down and, and kind of rethought, the, you know, the, the guts get cut out of it or it gets damaged. But for me, I actually think, I think the miniseries is fine. I think the, the film is, is remarkable. Um, and because what the film captures much better than the miniseries um, is the mystery of Vincent Van Gogh is you know it, it, it creates the film version which is missing a lot of the exposition and explanations to me creates a dream state I think even better than Three Women I mean Three Women is the thing we always whenever talk about that that side of Robert Altman's filmmaking that you know that that sort of dreamy surreal quality yeah. that's the film that always comes up Love to it. me <laughs> Vincent Vincent Teo has some of that same quality but it feels more focused hmm. and it kind of what's remarkable about it in the, in the theatrical version is it has that atmosphere and yet at the same time it feels incredibly real. I mean, it's sort of like that, that, that rare thing that films can sometimes achieve of feeling like you're, you're in a, a dream and a almost documentary reality at the same time. Uh, and you're going from between experiencing Van Gogh's very subjective experience of madness and creativity and a much more objective view of what he was going through and what his brother Teo was going through in trying to take care of him and, and help him survive in the world. Um, Tim Roth is incredible. It's probably my favorite Tim Roth performance, and he's another, that's another great actor where there's a million great performances, but I think this may be the best of them all. Hmm. Paul Reeves, who is not well-known enough, you know, is amazing as Teo. And it's, it's really, it's beautifully shot. The whole movie looks to me sort of like a Vince Van Gogh painting, which is obviously something they were intentionally going for. But it achieves it without ever being distracting. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like that kind of a thing becomes all that you notice, and I felt like they walked this really great line with it where the cinematography definitely uses Van Gogh's color and feel and all that without ever feeling like, oh, yes, and now they're doing Crows. Oh, yes, now they're doing Starry Night. It doesn't get literal, but it, it, it achieves the essence of what Van Gogh's paintings had. Um, and it's just a remarkable film about about all those things, about where madness and creativity and all those things cross, and do, is one necessary for the other, and um, and and the, the much longer uh, you know miniseries version that was done for Europe 
to me, loses all the mystery because everything gets explained. There's all these long scenes with doctors talking about what's wrong with Vincent and all these things. Like, well, when he was a child, this happens. And when he was, you know, and then when he when he when he says this, this is what he's thinking. And and to me, the second it's all explained, it gets much less interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still interesting, and the performances are still great. But there's something about the 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 lack of exposition in the short version that I feel like is a much more exciting um, way to tell that story. Um, Although I'm glad I saw both, because I think it's all remarkable filmmaking. But 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 uh, it's a rare rare case, and, th- and that's a film that I I really again, if you're interested in any of the elements of it, I would really recommend to people because it's 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 you know it, it's it's just unique. It's not like any other movie, and to me, those are the movies that really stick with me. Is that uh, finding an uh, even an analog would be very difficult. Well, I'm definitely going to check that one out as soon as possible. Being being an Altman fan, and I, there's st- there's still quite a few films of his I haven't seen that I'm very curious about it. and that's that's definitely right up there so i'm glad you brought that up and reminded me um yeah which well, is very emotional and i think yeah. that's what i appreciate about it is that is that you know three women to me is great but i don't find it an emotional experience i find it an intellectual experience sure with Vincent and to me he's like kind of still playing with this this kind of dreamlike alternate reality but it also really captures the deep deep pain of being an artist and the deep deep pain of loving somebody that you can't save, and that which was Teo's experience, and you know, so you're you're kind of getting all the other stuff, but it also it's really a human story at the same time, and that's why I think it kind of is a remarkable piece. Yeah, and you also included some titles here, um, a couple of them here that I haven't seen called. Uh, well, you you listed on your list of never on the radar the way they should have been. Uh, so talk a little bit about Skin of Man, Heart of Beast. Uh, had trouble finding this one. Let's see. Uh, it's, a, it's a very obscure film. I, I stumbled into it. Again, you know, I, one of the things I do is whenever somebody mentions to me, you should see this movie, I actually try to write it down because, you know, your friends, like, if you're, if you're, if you're a film fan and your friends are film fans and, you know, people will mention something they happen to see and it's like, it's a great resource. <laughs> yeah, uh, and this is a film somebody had mentioned to me. It was made in 1999. It's a French film. Uh, directed by a woman named Helene Angel, or Angel, I don't know how she pronounces it, but it's spelled Angel, A-N-G-E-L. Uh, and it's this, again, I, I'm drawn to these films. It's, it has, it's actually an interesting connection to, Vince, to Vincent and Teo, in that somewhat similarly, it mixes a very sort of documentarily real side with a very surreal dreamlike side um, and does it beautifully I mean it kind of is another example of that nothing like it in terms of in terms of the specifics of the style but the same feeling it's, it, it basically is about a, a deeply deeply dysfunctional violent family in in rural France and the effect and the toll of this of this incredibly scary violent father takes over time on these two on, on his two young daughters um, and it, it's again not an easy film to watch. It's very disturbing. It's very creepy. Um, and you, much like what I was saying about Vincent Teo, you're kind of switching back and forth between experiencing things the way these young girls experience it, which is as as nightmarish as the real family is. They're seeing it as, through the eyes of a child, where mm. you don't even understand the violence and what's going on and your father's affairs that he's having and the way he's beating up your mother. And so you're coming up with your own interpretations of it so some of it feels very much like a child's nightmare and the other times you step back and you go and here's the reality and the reality is not much less horrifying than what these kids are seeing um and the performances are, are just spectacular down the road i don't know where where uh, the director found these two kids or how she worked with them but you know because she had to take them some really disturbing and disturbed places and she does 
Uh, again, not an easy film to, to watch. And there were, you know, critically, it was somewhat divided. There were some critics who said that it was sort of family torture porn, that it was like just sort of like, you know, what's the point of this except seeing how horrible a family can be? There were other people like me who saw it as incredibly moving and is a really important examination of particularly the masculine id and how dangerous it is and how much damage it gets done in families by that sort of violent male energy. And, and yes, not all fathers are like this father, but as is often the case in movies or literature or whatever, you'll take an exaggerated version of something as, as a way to examine a situation. Uh, but certainly within families, fathers tend to be the domineering. They tend to be the violent one. They tend to be, if not verbally violent one, the one who screams and yells. They tend to be the, 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 the nexus of fear in a family. And I do think that some of that has to do with the, you know, the, the masculine ego and what men are taught to be like. And sure. I felt like the film was a really important look at that and, and the damage that gets done and, and that people don't think about that as much as they need to. So to me, it, it had a great... It had a great reason to exist. It was not just wallowing in, 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 the, uh, in the disturbingness of it. But, again, sort of trigger warnings, you know, for, for people. I mean, it is not, it's not an easy movie. Um, but I think it's an important movie, and I think it's a very powerful movie, and a shockingly well-made movie. Um, and just one of those things I stumbled into and I was really glad to have seen. Um, and it does exist. There is a DVD, so it may be rentable. Again, you'd have, you may have to track it down, but there was a U.S. DVD. It's now long out of print, but but it, 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 it was available, which means that people may have it. For some reason, having, you know, uh, having talked about both Tim Roth and you mentioning family torture porn, uh, I immediately thought of when I was recommending to people, and they were kind of getting, they weren't mad at me, they were just unprepared for how harrowing it was, and that's another uh, case of an actor directing, and that's The War Zone. Uh, oh, which I've never seen, but I've heard incredible things about. I mean, it is. Oh my God, is it? It's just you have to prepare yourself. Uh, <laughs> that's. It is one of the darkest, bleakest movies I've ever seen. Um, but in, in light of the of the just the actors that play the parents alone, Ray Winstone and Tilda Swinton, it's it's absolutely worth your time to 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 sit wow. through. But when you mentioned that last movie, it just made 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 me think of the. Um, yeah, the idea of just a, a horrible um, father protagonist and just the kind of damage he's causing to his own family and sometimes not even realizing it. Uh, it it's, it's just really hard to sit through, and it's one of those maybe one-timers, like, like a Requiem for a Dream or something, you know? But it's, it's heavy, and it's worth seeing, though. Yeah, to me, those are, film, those are the films that are sometimes the most important. I mean, I, I actually think things that are difficult sometimes are the ones that also really stay with you and really make you examine yourself and the world around you. You know, I mean, entertainment is great, and I love films that are fun and light sure. and sweet, and, but I feel like some of the ones that really have had deep effects on myself and my view of the world and how I interrelate with other people, you know, sometimes you have to go through something disturbing to, to really be made to rethink how you, how you interact with the world around you. So I feel like those films done well however uncomfortable they are actually are, are really important you know that 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 the best of art isn't always just about a pleasant experience yeah and that's definitely one of those cases um just <laughs> just um just make sure you're re you're 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 sitting down and ready for it at the same time you know <laughs> it's one of those where you have to uh, okay maybe meditate a little bit beforehand relax yourself have a nice cup of tea or something <laughs> Um, 
So yeah, uh, Lamerica. Tell me about that one. Oh, Lamerica is a, a wonderful film. Again, not the easiest film to see. There was a. It was made in 1994. Um, there was a U.S. DVD put out, but went out of print, and now it's like super expensive. But it, it maybe some streaming services might have it. It was made by a guy named Gianni Emilio, who I think is a wonderful director, Italian mm-hmm. director. The film he's best known for that got a lot of attention here was made a couple of years earlier. It was called Stolen Children. It was oh, made yeah. in 1992. I think it got an Academy Award nomination. Right. It's also called Il Ladro di Bambini, which is the same thing in Italian. Uh, but that film got a lot of attention. This was his follow-up and got much less, although critically it, it was equally lauded. But, you know, again, for whatever reason, you know, films are, the success of films has got a lot of arbitrariness in it. Uh, you know, maybe because Stolen Children was about kids and that made it extremely accessible, uh, whereas, you know, L'America is about an old man, uh, which may be less accessible, you know. Um, but it's about uh, two Italians. It's, it's, they, go to, they go to post-communist Albania uh, to set up a factory. And apparently this was actually something that was common at that point. You know, the, the communism, the wall had come down, the communist world had fallen apart, and there were Italian kind of businessmen, capitalists, who wanted to go in and take advantage of the fact that Albania was a, a mess and was sort of in ruins and people were desperately needing jobs. And so they would set up factories and pay people almost nothing. And one of the things that they had to do legally was they had to have a local guy be um, – be in you know in charge of the factory in theory, so mm. that people would hire these figureheads and pay them almost nothing, but you know a, a lot more than you could get in Albania at that moment. And usually they 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 would do nothing, and so they find this old man who you know is almost crazy, and they hire him to to run the factory. And basically through a whole series of misadventures, the younger of the two capitalist guys from Italy bonds with this old man, and they form this very odd and strange and sad friendship and get into a whole series of misadventures, and it's ultimately incredibly, incredibly moving. Um, you know, and it, it, it's one of those films that, again, has different elements to it. I love films that are kind of rich, and and this basically is a, this is a very political film in a sense, in that it is, it's a portrait of colonialism and, you know, capitalism, you know, from the, the worst of the capitalism from the West crashing into the worst of the remains of communism from the east the, the bureaucracy and the mess of that and and but it's also about shattered souls and it's about the exploitation of people by every system and it's what kind of what's great about it is it's not pro-capitalist or pro-communist or it's basically you know a, a plea to live in a world where we don't exploit anybody no matter what you call it um and it's just a but for all that more intellectual sounding stuff it's also just a heartbreaking story of this sweet old man and him trying to find his place in the world and this young guy who doesn't know where he fits in either and the two of them you know sort of bonding over it and it's incredibly moving it reminds me a little bit of Vittoria De Sica you know in sort of feeling but but a much more modern version of it uh it's beautifully shot and uh you know it's it's also one of those films I've seen multiple times and it's held up uh it, you know some films you see once and, and I, I saw this and I finally cracked down a copy and then saw it again and I've now seen it four or five times and every it makes me cry every time um, and it's just a really moving human story about how easy it is for us not to teach, treat each other with the kind of humanity that we should. Mm. Um, but it, and it's quiet, you know. It's, it's a low key story, um, but it's ultimately incredibly powerful. Well, that's great. I'm I'm really excited to check that out. It does sound kind of up my alley. And a couple of a couple of friends online are now like l- labeling movies uh, that have a huge 
empathy factor as gym movies. It's like, okay, if, if there's a lot of humanity, if there's a lot of empathy and you really respond to that, and, and I feel like that's that should be the case for, for most movies, really. Because, you know, Ebert himself said that the experience of going to the movies is like experiencing a giant empathy machine because you're, um, you know, immersed into this world and getting to experience what these characters are experiencing. And it makes sense, too, that, you know, for me, uh, besides having a love of cinema, I majored in psychology and I just love, you know, learning about people's lives. And I continue to do that. And so I'm, I'm excited to check out quite a number of these movies because they do sound totally up my alley. Um, and and in the interest of time, I figured we close out with um, a question I posed to you, I believe, in a follow-up email. And it makes sense, seeing as how, well, the Coen brothers are um, embarked. I think their latest project is, in, is, is in fact, a TV miniseries. Um, and you worked on Fargo, of course. What would be your favorite Coen brothers movie? Well, it's, it's, it's boy. That's a hard competition in that I love so many of their movies. I sure. mean, uh, you know, to me, their their batting average is disgustingly high. I mean, you know, I, it's it's heartbreaking for us mere mortals. You like look at their movies and go, okay, they can just do anything, and I hate <laughs> yeah. them. Um, but but it's funny. Probably for me, Barton Fink um, mm-hmm. is my very favorite, and that's and that's you know that's a film that I had sort of said is to me one of those overlooked films. I mean, people know about it because it's the Coen Brothers, so it's not like it's like people don't know it. But again, I'm shocked at how often I, I, I go. I go mentor at the um, Sundance Film Lab every summer and work with young filmmakers. And, oh, that's you know, great. And, and yeah, but it's so funny how often I'll bring up a movie like Barton Fink and they'll go, "Yeah, I never saw that." And you realize, "Oh God, you know, things that seem like part of the world if you're growing up at that time get forgotten very quickly." And that film, I think, is sort of falling to that category. And to me, it's maybe the most remarkable example of the Coen brothers using style, using surrealism, using incredible imagery. It's Roger Deakins, who I think is one of the very best cinematographers ever. Uh, Carter Burwell's score is one of his very best scores ever. It's hysterically funny, um, and it's terribly heartbreaking. The performances are great. I mean, maybe John Turturro's best work ever, John John Goodman is amazing in it. John Mahoney is excellent. They're all named John, I just realized. <laughs> yeah, um, no kidding. Um, I, I don't know that that was something they tried to do, but they did. Um, but it really, Michael Lerner, um, who was an actor that people didn't even know that well until that movie came out, and then he got an Academy Award nomination, I believe, and kind of had a moment because of it. Um, Judy and Davis. It's, it's a portrait of Judy, who's always amazing. Yeah. And it's a portrait of Hollywood in, 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 the, in the 30s and a portrait of a young writer who's very full of himself and goes to Hollywood. He's a, he's a playwright and he goes to Hollywood to become a screenwriter. And some of it's an hysterically funny uh, satire of, of Hollywood and Hollywood conventions. But then it's got, on top of all the humor and all that, this very, very dark, surrealist, creepy side where you come to realize that the hotel where this young writer is staying may literally be hell. I mean, it certainly figuratively has elements of hell, but by the end of the movie, you realize, no, he might actually be in hell. And, you know, are the Coen brothers really saying that literally Hollywood is hell, which is which one could make an argument for. Um, and it manages to be ha-ha-ha, laugh-out-loud funny, and yet really kind of gut-churningly upsetting at the same time. Uh, John Goodman's character, you know, you just he just throws you back and forth between just loving the guy and laughing out loud and being horrified at him. Um, and it's one of those films that 
it's it is utterly entertaining. It's completely fun to watch, but it also is terribly haunting and disturbing. And I found the, you know, stuck with me uh, and made me think about it for days later. And I, I think if a film does that, that's the greatest gift of all. I mean, if for for whatever reason, you know, whatever emotions it evokes, if it if if a film haunts me, if a film becomes part of my my thought process for a time afterwards, and I. And I, I I, I sort of see the world in a new way. That to me is great filmmaking, you know. And that can be a comedy, can be a tragedy, can be anything. But to, but to me, there's a lot of films that are lovely, and I forget five minutes after I see them. And Barton Fink was the opposite. Barton Fink was a film that I was like could not get out of my head, and went back and saw over and over again. Um, it's very much a taste movie, you know. It, it, it's weirdness. It has a lot of fans. I mean, a lot of people are crazy about it, but there are people who just don't like it at all and i can also understand that because it's it is so odd and it's mix of humor and horrificness and surrealism and satire is is weird and if you key into it which i did it's amazing if it, if you don't key into it and you just it doesn't work for you i i couldn't i couldn't argue like somebody told me oh that's the worst movie i've ever seen i would have no good argument to that it's yeah. like yeah it's a, it's a personal experience um but i it's something that again i would say for any film fan if you like the Coen Brothers at all, it's probably the most Coen Brother movie ever, that they ever made. It kind of takes all of their stuff and take, does it on acid. Uh, you know, the darkness, the lightness, the humor, the weirdness, the, you know, no one else could have possibly made this movie. It is the most Coen Brothers movie of all the Coen Brothers movies. So if you've liked their other films, you know, it's worth seeing as long as you know what you're getting in for, which is, which is you know... Take Fargo and then take LSD and then you're watching. <laughs> then you're watching. Uh, you're watching Barton Fink. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I believe they kind of wrote it um, while trying to complete Miller's Crossing, or they were like, um, kind of. Uh, in, not, not, I don't think that project was necessarily in limbo, but I think they were having trouble finishing it. Maybe even just the screenplay at that point. And that's when they wrote Barton Fink, kind of like during this little lull they were having. And it just sort of poured out of them in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, rather in- instinctive way. It just sort of it sort of wrote itself. They said, um, and that's a really well. That makes a point. lot of sense because yeah. it's like it's like you're inside someone's fever dream. Yeah, I mean, totally. It, it, it's it's as close as an experience to being in someone else's nightmare as I can remember. Yeah. You know, and and so it feels like it has that. It does have that feeling like they could have written this sitting in one like. 12 hour like just sat down and wrote it session you know where it just poured out because it has that that sort of feeling of veracity and dreamlike craziness but yet all feels of a piece um, that, that I think if you tried to do intellectually you'd end up it would feel like that it would feel like people, it, what, what I think makes the movie amazing to me is it's so out there and yet it never feels clever in quotes it never feels like somebody mm-hmm. going oh I'm going to be you know, cute with this visual metaphor here. It feels very heartfelt, as weird and completely self-conscious as it is. And I think that what you're explaining would actually speak to that, how that could have happened, uh, that it did come out of them out of a real personal place. If they yeah. were stuck writing, because this is, it's maybe the greatest movie ever made about writers. I, I sort of, you'd be a competition for me, like this or The Shining or the best movie ever made about writer's block. But, um, you know, it, it's definitely one of those two. And sure. if they were in the midst of experiencing that, that this came out of that would actually make a lot of sense. Yeah, this happens to be my favorite Coen Brothers movie, <laughs> along with uh, a serious man, and I think they're kind of they're they're kind of brothers in a way. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know, they they. I mean, Serious Man might be a more accessible 
Barton Fink, but particularly the way that movie ends really gets on people's nerves um, because it doesn't have, you know, similarly to uh, some of Noel Hawley's work, it doesn't spell out uh, or it doesn't give you that sense of closure. It ends on an ambiguous note, and I, I appreciate that more than just, you know, giving you a set conclusion. But at the same time, people like my mom, um, they get angry. They go, why, why couldn't this writer give me an ending instead of having me to think about what the ending means? <laughs> and I love that well, experience. Well, you know, people have gotten very used to, you know, Hollywood giving easy answers. And and I do think people now get thrown off when, when, when films don't. But I think if you look at, you know, if you made a list of the, the hundred greatest films ever ever made, I think one would be surprised at how many of them t- tend to have ambiguous endings or ambiguous meanings. Or, mm. and I think that's part of what makes films uh, important and what makes them long lasting is, is is films that ask questions. Two thousand one being a great example of it. Whatever, um, those films tend to live because because the questions are, are timeless. Answers are less timeless. Answers tend to be of the moment. And they tend, and also it tends to be like, oh, okay, there's the answer, and fine. So he was good, she was bad. All right, got it, done. But films that leave with questions, you can revisit those questions forever. I mean, I mean, Hamlet is full of questions. I mean, a lot of the sure. you know, the great dramatic stories tend to be the ones that that make us think, as opposed to make us feel like, okay, that's over with, and I can now put it aside. Um, but I do think that, yeah, whether it's your mom or I can think of so many people I've known in my life or whatever who get really frustrated and they want, you know, tell me what the answer is. And 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 I think challenging that is a great thing, but it's always harder. It's harder commercially, it's harder artistically, um, but when it works, boy, it, it's why these home stuff stayed with us so long. Yeah, and certainly uh, I, would, I would say at least three of your films would make my underrated... Uh, 90s list, which I will be putting together uh, myself uh, very soon, and I really do appreciate you coming back to talk with me, and I I think this is a good topic for for the future, overlooked films in general. Um, So yeah, and honestly, when I talk to you, Keith, you're like like the big brother I wish I had. (laughs) Oh my, well, I I gotta tell you, it is for me, it's delightful for me too, and I mean, I love movies. I only work on these, in this silly business because I love movies. So and you can it's tell, and anyone can tell somebody else that. who loves movies. Yeah. Um, well, you know, so I will, I will, anytime you would like to talk, and, and also one of my great favorite things in life is telling people about wonderful movies they may not know about. I think that's really joyful for me. So anytime you want to talk about, like, movies that people should go out and see that they haven't seen, I'm, I, you know, just, just call me. I'll jump in. Excellent, Keith. Well, uh, I'm hoping to check in with you again next year, if not sooner, and certainly keep keep me uh keep me in the in the loop uh of any future projects you got going on or when something pops up or comes into fruition for you because you know i'm rooting for you man well thank i know i feel that and i appreciate it and just talking to you is always so much fun so so you know thanks for asking me because i i was delighted to 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 do this with you all right great well take care and uh talk to you again in the future okay all right my friend take care okay later man bye-bye Thank you, everybody, again, so much for listening, and thanks to Keith Gordon for his third appearance, and hopefully not his last. Uh, Visit VoicesVisions.net, and NowPlayingNetwork.net. Thanks, everyone. Just before our love got lost, you see, I am as constant as a northern star, and I will see constantly in the darkness. Where's that at? You 